Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. A world that unexpectedly comes to a halt. A society that finds its activities and routines, its lifestyle overturned almost overnight. A leader of a nation calling for extreme sacrifices, an unknown threat, a future that perhaps contains destruction and grief. No, I'm not talking about our nation and our world in the wake of this novel coronavirus. I'm talking instead about the story of Jonah. A few weeks ago, we began a sermon series at Sweetwater Christian Church where I invited our community to adopt Jonah, the prophet, and the story as a traveling companion for the season of Lent. The season of Lent is this time before our celebration of Easter where we prepare to worship the risen Christ by participating in certain spiritual disciplines, by being deliberate about our acts of repentance, fasting, praying, participating in certain spiritual disciplines. And I know that with all of the things that have happened in the last couple of weeks, it seems like for many of us, so much of our world and so much of our lives have been overturned. We're coming to you this morning digitally, virtually, because our church, like most churches, have closed in-person worship services for the time being. So much of our world has been disrupted and overturned. But I want to invite us back into the story of Jonah And I want us to discover in the story of Jonah, where we pick it up in chapter 3, a wide variety of parallels to our situation today. As I got back to studying the book of Jonah and the passage we'll look at this morning together, I couldn't help but see parallel after parallel after parallel after parallel between the situation we're currently facing and that which is presented to us in the narrative. And so this morning as we dig into this story, as we explore this text I think we'll find that God's Spirit has a word for us to help us as we move forward in addressing these uncertain and unknown times. So we pick it up in Jonah chapter 3. If you haven't heard the first two messages of the series, they are available online on our podcast and you can catch up there. Most people are pretty familiar with the story of Jonah and As the story is retold in a lot of children's books, it kind of stops after chapter 2. You have Jonah, he gets a call from God, he goes in another direction, and then he is um, faced with this storm. He gets thrown out of the boat into the sea, he ends up in the belly of a fish, and then at the end of chapter 2, he is vomited out of the fish, and he is back on his mission. And more or less, we kind of end the story there, but it continues in the book of Jonah, and it gets more complicated and nuanced and perhaps more challenging for us. We'll pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1, as we continue the story. Jonah is, remember, vomited up onto the shore, still reeking of the guts of this fish bile dripping down his face. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. 
Now, this is literary deja vu. This should remind us of chapter 1, verse 1, because it's almost the exact same thing. Jonah, though, is a new man. He is, in a sense, reborn out of the belly of this fish. God comes back to him and gives him the same instructions. Go to Nineveh. Go to this great city of this foreign empire, Assyria, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And Jonah, instead of running in the other direction, perhaps now realizes that he's got to face the music in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now we can stop here and notice a handful of things. First, let's remind ourselves what Nineveh is, what it represents in this story. Nineveh is not just a foreign city. It's not just a city that Jonah doesn't like or Jonah is not familiar with. Nineveh represents an evil empire, a truly bad thing that exists in the world and which threatens God's people's very own existence. The first week of our sermon series we explored how terrible this call really would be for Jonah. Now, we might imagine that Nineveh is right off the coast, and so Jonah is vomited up, and then he is enthusiastically able to enter into this new adventure, but it's actually hundreds of miles from the coast. And so we're more likely to imagine Jonah having this very long journey into this evil, scary empire where every horrible scenario he can think of comes to mind. You know, Jonah's not told that he's not going to face danger or destruction in this city. This is what any rational person would imagine if they were to come unexpectedly into this society and try to confront them with a message about their politics and regime. You know, Jonah's not a Protestant missionary going to a foreign country. He's a Hebrew prophet called to an empire, called to confront them about their life and practice of violence. Jonah is faced in chapter 3 with perhaps the true beast in this story. It's not the fish in chapter 2, it's the empire. And we'll see in chapter 3 perhaps the biggest miracle of the story of Jonah, which is not a man surviving in the belly of a fish, but how this empire responds to Jonah's message. One of the reasons the response comes to us as surprising is because of the content and tone and flavor of Jonah's message. We've got to be honest here. This is one of the worst sermons that has probably ever been preached in the history of prophecy. Eight words were given here in English. Jonah says, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He doesn't mention God. He doesn't tell them why they're being overthrown. He doesn't give them any potential possibility of a different future. Now, we're never told specifically what God instructs Jonah to say to the people. And so maybe Jonah is saying verbatimly what God has instructed him to say. But I think it's easy to imagine that Jonah is here obeying in a sense that's kind of half-hearted, you know, One of the ways to disobey God is just to do the opposite of what we're supposed to do. Jonah's tried that. It's not gone well for him. Another way that we often try to disobey God is is more subtly. It's by obeying, but in a half-hearted way. 
I don't know if you've ever been given a chore by your parents or your spouse, and you realize that perhaps maybe the best way to get out of it was not to not do it, but was to do it in a real poor way. And Jonah here seems to be doing this. This is a very half-hearted effort. Now, we have other examples of prophets who have been called to prophesy against Nineveh. Nahum, in the Minor Prophets, is an example of this. And if you were to go read Nahum, it's very graphic and explicit. It's full of imagery and adjectives. Nahum is very clear about who God is, about why God has this opinion about Nineveh, about what is going to happen to Nineveh. We get none of this here in Jonah's message to them. And Jonah, being kind of a joke of a prophet here in the story, is now seen giving kind of a joke of a message. And yet, even with this bad excuse of a sermon, we get a remarkable response, one that is hard to imagine. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now try to imagine being on the streets of Nineveh. Try to try to empathize with what it might be like to be a Ninevite, to be part of this thriving empire, this expansive empire. And to have this Hebrew prophet show up and give you this strange message. There's no reason given in the story and no reason that's easy to imagine why the Ninevites would have believed this message. Why they would have understood it had something to do with God and had something to do with their behavior. And why in mass this whole city might repent. This half-hearted message, this joke of a prophecy produces perhaps the most successful response that the world has ever seen. The narrator in chapter 3 ratchets up the level of comedy and satire and irony. And we'll see it gets even more and more intensely turned up. We're to imagine, we're to step into a world in which this whole city turns. And they call for a fast. You know, fasting is the body's way of praying. The belly can't talk, but when we withhold food from our bodies, our bodies, without words and verbally, express our vulnerability, express our need, cry out to God and say, we, we need help. We need strength that comes from outside of ourselves. Sackcloth is literally, you know, the cloth they would have made for sacks. Think of kind of goat hair, and, and it's kind of this outward symbol of inward repentance, The idea is you kind of make yourself uncomfortable as a way, again, of expressing that we're in need. We need help from outside of ourselves. We're asking for God to come and deliver us. And the whole city, we're told, from the greatest of them to the least of them, engages in this fast. They put on sackcloth. They believe God. The word, verse 6, reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Again, this is just, this is remarkable. The king hears a rumor about this message that's come into the empire, and he responds with belief, repentance. He ratchets it up a notch and sits in ashes. And he issues, verse 7, a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast 
herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Now, again, the narrator is turning up the comedy of this scenario. So the king's proclamation goes out, and now we're to imagine not only all the people of Nineveh engaging in this fast, engaging in this act of repentance, this time of penitence, but also now the animals are included in this. Now the goats are walking around with the goat hair on them, making them uncomfortable, scratching them up. The cows are moving out. It's, It's not just people engaged in this fast the animals themselves aren't even allowed to taste the food. I mean, this is kind of an unprecedented act of repentance in all of human history. It's a, it's a funny situation. And it's interesting because the, the very same reaction that Nineveh engages in right now, confronted with their wickedness, turning to God in repentance... This is what Israel herself will not be able to do later on that actually is the cause of their destruction at the hands of this empire. The irony wouldn't be missed for ancient readers that it's because of the Ninevites' reaction here, their proper reaction, that they were destroyed later for their improper reaction. The king, we're told, says, Who knows, God? Or let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. A couple things that I want us to look at and think about this morning. The first is that the Ninevites for us model for us what repentance looks like. They invite us along into their story as we seek to think about what it might mean to practice this season of Lent to turn from our evil ways, to consider the violence of our hands, to fast and put on sackcloth, to call out mightily to God. It's a very interesting thing that happens in this story. Jonah shows up and unexpectedly, without reason, in a very remarkable turn of events, the people respond and they listen. And this is proof that it's not Jonah and the power of his message that causes his reaction. It's the power of God's word and and the power of his grace and his grace alone. One scholar, though, says that that if we're trying to imagine the logic of of how this foreign city, this, this empirical city might be called into repentance, we might imagine it not being the message of Jonah as much as the person of Jonah. He, he calls it a Jonaic interruption. That it's, it's not the message. The, the Assyrians would have been familiar with people who didn't like the way they did business, who thought that their gods had qualms about their actions and activities. But it perhaps would have been very surprising for someone to show up in person and vulnerability, to come to the other, to the enemy, with this message. It's that kind of moment where something happens or someone shows up and Everyone else looks around at each other, makes eye contact, or even without making eye contact, and asks themselves, what is this person doing here? Why is this happening? For someone to show up willing to sacrifice their life, placing themselves in the state of vulnerability for the other, it interrupts the logic of our world. It interrupts the logic of violence. It interrupts the logic of empire. And this Jonaic interruption perhaps creates some space for people to imagine 
that a different world is possible for people to imagine that perhaps the way they are living, the actions they're engaging with, the habits that have become so commonplace to them are in fact not the path to life and that that path to life might be found on the road of repentance. This Jonaic interruption is perhaps what you and I are experiencing right now. We've found our world turned upside down, seemingly overnight. We've found our economies coming to halts. We've found our jobs shut down or closed. Even our worshiping communities are having to adjust in big ways. If, if I were to ask you to think about when we started the journey of Lent together on Ash Wednesday, which seems like it was another lifetime, if you made certain commitments, I'm, I'm going to pray daily, I'm going to participate in this fast, I'm going to give this up, I'm going to adopt this spiritual discipline. I think most of us might be forgiven if we've maybe forgotten about that or we've stopped that. Our lives have been interrupted on individual scales, on family scales, on a national and global scale. We've, we're faced with a new situation, unprecedented a world being overturned. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the Ninevites' repentance might serve as a guide for how we might respond to the interruption of our lives that's been placed into our world through this this virus. Perhaps the interruption that we're experiencing is not a way for the season of Lent to be interfered with or for our call to worship God and to serve him by loving others as ourselves, to be canceled, but it's instead an invitation into a deeper and more faithful practicing of the season of Lent. A a more faithful and more deliberate posture of worship and service and love and care for the poor and the stranger, and the other, and the enemy. What if we understood and saw this time of change and uncertainty and interruption not as something which interferes with our ability to practice Lent, to worship God, and to serve him as we've been called to do, but instead as an invitation to do so in a more faithful way, in a more deliberate way? What if we look around at the changing nature of our world, the changing routines of our lives, and we ask ourselves the question, how might we repent more deliberately, more faithfully, more intentionally? How might we consider the evil that we have done, the violence that is on our hands? How might we more faithfully or fruitfully, mightily call out to God. The Ninevites model for us what repentance might look like, the life that we might find in repentance. What's equally surprising is not just the Ninevites' reaction to this message, if you will. It's also what the king says about God and what we learn about God. The king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent 
and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And, and we kind of leave the Ninevites here in this situation as far as the story of Jonah goes. We're not told much else about what happens to Nineveh. It's left on kind of this uncertain term. Who knows, maybe our actions will be enough to mitigate the damage which is to come. Again, sound familiar? But we, the readers of Jonah, are given a God's eye view. In verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God sees their repentance, and he repays it with repentance of his own. Now, our English translations perhaps get in the way a bit of seeing what's really going on here in this text. We're reading out of the ESV, the English Standard um, Translation, version of the, the scriptures, and it uses this word relent. God relented of the disaster that he had said. In the Hebrew, more literally, it's the same words being used. God saw that they had repented from their evil ways, and we're told God then repented from the evil which he had said he would do. And you might, you might see why translators would want to perhaps avoid some confusion here. This doesn't sound like something God does or should be doing, repenting of evil. In fact, though, in the Old Testament, God does a lot of repenting. This word could also mean change one's mind, turn around. All the way back from the book of Genesis, we're told that the God relents or repents or changes his mind. He regrets in Genesis 6, verse 6, making humankind after seeing how violent and sinful the whole world has become. We're told he also relents or repents or regrets making Saul king in the book of 1 Samuel. We're told in Jeremiah over and over again that if those who God's judgment has come upon repent, God himself promises then to repent as well and to not do the evil, not moral evil, but the justice, the judgment with which he has threatened them. It is the case in the scriptures that perhaps there's more texts that talk about God changing his mind or repenting, if you will, and God not changing his mind. Usually when, when we're told that God doesn't change his mind, it's in terms of, uh, it's qualified by a promise. God, God doesn't change his mind in terms of deciding to do something, to deliver God's people, to send a Messiah, a king, to save his people. He doesn't lie like man lies. But there is a, a thread throughout the scriptures that perhaps might give us hope and comfort. Old Testament scholar J. N. Oswald says this, there's only one situation in which he can be depended on not to keep his word. If he has announced destruction because of sin and is given almost any good reason to change his mind, he will gladly do so. The best of such reasons is repentance on the part of the sinner, but another is intercession. We see this in the scriptures. Sometimes it's not actually even repentance on the part of those under judgment, but it's intercession at the hands of God's people. God comes and says, I'm going to destroy this city, and Abraham intercedes on their behalf. God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy the Israelites, and Moses intercedes on their behalf, and this language of repentance is used. In Ezekiel, we're told that, that God doesn't delight in destroying mankind, and instead he seeks to take any advantage, any opportunity to show mercy and grace. 
The theological explanation we're given here helps us understand what's happening here and elsewhere in the scriptures when we see this language of repentance. God's flexibility when it comes to judgment exists because of his inflexible nature, his unchanging character of love and mercy, of compassion and grace. God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and 400th chances and 1,000th chances. Jonah learns this vomited up onto the shore out of the belly of a fish. The Ninevites learn this through their repentance. God is happy. He, he almost jumps at any chance to show mercy towards those who would turn from their ways and through repentance seek the life that he has come to offer them. This is good news for you and for I. This is good news for the world. No one has ever turned to God. No one has ever engaged in repentance, called out to God, and not found anything but the open and loving arms of the Father. Like the son in the story of the prodigal son who who returns home to the Father to find a party and a celebration. God doesn't begrudgingly welcome us back, accept us, and offer us forgiveness. No, he's thrilled to. He's happy to. He's looking for almost any excuse to be able to. What the Ninevites discover is that the interruption to their life and lifestyle, the way their world is overturned, is actually an invitation to repentance, and that this invitation into repentance is the road on which they discover what God is like, what God is up to in their world, And the same applies to you and I today. If we were to take this interruption of our life and use it to faithfully and deliberately engage in repentance and worship and service and love, we too might find out more about the heart of God. We too might experience a revelation of God's great love and compassion and grace for us, we might find deeper and more abundant experiences of life than we've yet to discover. This is the invitation for us this morning. This is the call that the Ninevites in the story of Jonah presents to us to not let this interruption interfere with the season of Lent and the call to worship but instead to be an invitation into a more faithful and deliberate practice of Lent and the duties of worship and love and service. And when we do that, we might find that not only is the world as we know it overturned, not only can God do miraculous and impossible things, but we might find that this is in fact like God. This is in fact characteristic of God. For God, like the king of Nineveh, to humble himself. The king's actions here are kind of a foreshadowing of the incarnation. Jonah's actions in coming to the enemy in a vulnerable position is a foreshadowing of God the Son coming to us, willing to take on the form of a servant by becoming a human being, not counting equality with God something to be grasped, but instead emptying himself. And, And not just becoming a human, but then 
being crucified so that you and I might receive his life. This morning, might we hear that call? This morning, might we respond like the Ninevites, like the king? Might we decide to repent, to continue in a life of repentance, to call out to God, and to embrace the joy and the life that we find and the love of God embodied to us in Jesus Christ, his son. And in so doing, we might find ourselves prepared to engage in our own Jonaic interruptions, to show up and take care of the sick and the stranger and the poor, to be able to sacrifice of our own lives and safety and resources for the good of those around us. Life has been interrupted, yes, But it's not an interference, or at least it doesn't have to be. Let it, for us, be an invitation. And may we respond faithfully. And in that response, receive the beautiful life which God has prepared for us.